0: Pat, show you how. July 11, 2010, lecture discussion number six. Number six, that's for the people on iTunes. This is number six. That would be, never mind, on the Book of Romans. Let me get the time down so that you don't accuse me of not paying attention. (laughs) Well, 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 last Sunday, our study of the Book of Romans... And we're still in the introductory phase. A couple more weeks of that probably took us where all studies of Romans should, where all studies of Romans have to begin. I kind of went a little bit out of order because I knew it would be a shock to you if I didn't. Um, But, of course, you end up very quickly and almost immediately to the prophet Habakkuk. And his two questions or his two complaints, whichever you prefer to call them. There are two addresses, regardless, that are made by Habakkuk. These things that he does, items, if you will, and they are presented by Habakkuk to God. That's what he does. And Habakkuk could not reason his way through either one of his complaints or his questions. He found them to be too difficult for him, a prophet of God, to figure out. And therefore, he brought them before God, which is your first applicational lesson. Uh, the prophet Habakkuk did what he is supposed to do. He is supposed to ask God to tell him where he's wrong. If you find yourself going through scripture and you think that you have something that is accusatory or in any way defaming the character or the will or the omniscience of God, then you are what? You're wrong. And so what do you do now? You ask God to show you where you're wrong instead of assuming what? That you're not wrong because you are wrong. Habakkuk immediately knew he was wrong, but he nonetheless brought his questions that he thought were unanswerable, that were accusatory. Let me say that again. He brought them before God. So he's complaining. And I'm on record quite a few times, actually, even again this evening. I just did it again. Is saying that both of these questions that Habakkuk brings before God, as are many of the questions that we bring before God... Many of the complaints that we bring before God, these two specifically, very much, are on the edge of blasphemy. They're certainly disrespectful. They're certainly insulting to God. And they certainly are very limited in their understanding of God. So there's the first thing that you should recognize. If you're pounding your fist on the table and you're accusing God of being unfair to you, or not listening to you, then what has happened? You are in wrong, Bill. And you're insulting God, and you are, well, what's the word I want? Dumb isn't strong enough. Ignorant is closer. Stop it. Just realize that you have a complaint. You don't know the answer to it. But that's the problem. You don't know the answer to it. So, each of these complaints or questions that Habakkuk brought before God implied a bunch of stuff. One, that God is not omniscient or that he is not absolute pure good. So he doesn't know what he's doing. They imply that God and he doesn't care. They imply that God considered all the aspects and consequences and couldn't come up with a good decision or a good result and that he's unfair and he's unjust. And the natural progressive end of that kind of thinking, you're in a situation, you're in Habakkuk's situation, you don't think God is fair, so you complain to him that he's not fair. You don't think that he knows everything that he ought to know about the situation, so you, in your ignorance, you bring details to him. Well, God, did you not know that I, whatever. Of course he knows, he's omniscient. To accuse him of leaving out a detail, to bring something to his attention. God, by the way, my neighbor is a really bad person, much worse than me. Don't you know that? Here's a list of things that I've caught him at. Take that into consideration. Would you please, God? And if you're not listening to me, then you're not good, because I have a valid argument here. You're not answering me. All of that implies that God is not good, not omniscient, that he's unfair, he's unjust, and that you are at least as equal in this area. That's what you've done. And the natural progressive end of that kind of thinking will be declare that God is evil. Eventually, you'll start out by saying he's the source and he's the author of evil. But eventually you'll get to there, get to the point where he is evil himself. That's the natural progressive end of that kind of complaining and questioning to God. And Habakkuk starts out that way. doesn't end that way. starts out that way. That's why it's a very important book to know. Which is why I submit, by the way, that such complaints of questioning of God in this manner, at its core, is blasphemy. God is absolute, pure good. There is not, no, none, never does he have a sinful thought or act. There is nothing that he does not recognize or know. He is omniscient, not ever. So to to say so is to place sin in him. And that eventually, as you know, is the same as placing sin in Jesus Christ. And that is heresy to do so. And it destroys the foundation of our salvation. But by the way, it's what? Who does this? Who complains to God that he doesn't know everything? If he just know if I just point a couple of things out to him, maybe he changes mind. Help me out. Who does that kind of ridiculous praying? All of us. I know you're guilty. Because I'm guilty. And I don't like being stupid by myself. So I want you all to be stupid, just like me. And I'm sure that you are. And if you aren't, I don't believe you. So therefore, I get to call you stupid because it aligns you with me. We all do it. We complain. I remember I'm you've gotten my book. uh, Matt's not here. I made this joke a while back. My book on how to make a hundred dollars in real estate. And of course, Laurie's brother, Matt, worked with me on a lot of those projects. And he said, you didn't make a hundred bucks. And if you did, you hit it. And I want my share, my fifty (laughs) dollars. And we've worked a lot of awful jobs, by the way, for fun to see what we're doing. Go to Laurie's bookface site. There's pictures of us the framing crew me and Bill and Lori and Jane framing this hotel it's attached to this little tiny trailer house it's really kind of interesting to see what we're doing and we have one of the flying Lorenzos there who's never framed anything of in his life but boy does he have an absolute comfort with walking up on 40 foot roofs so but do that you'll like what you see maybe You'll think we're crazy, and we are. We are absolutely crazy. But I've never been a successful contractor. I'll say that again. I did okay. I survived, but I never really made any money. And I remember having a house, a really nice house. I'd like to show it to you sometime. Uh, I called the subdivision Satan Marie because I could never sell this house. really named something else, but that's what I called it. And the guy next door slapped his house together in about a half hour. And we're meticulous. We commercially frame and we got plywood everywhere. We built this incredible building. It's amazing. All the houses in that neighborhood will crash down in an 80 mile an hour wind. Ours will stay through the tribulation. I firmly believe that. It's not true, but it doesn't stop me from believing it. Anyway, he sold his in a half hour. And I'm complaining to God. My house is better, God. Don't you know that? My house is a lot better. It's bigger. It's more complex. It's better designed. It's better built. There's no question about it. Mine's better. How come his sold and mine didn't? It's not fair. We ended up getting rid of the house, dumping the house. And uh, Lori and I took us, what, seven years to pay that off. And I whined all seven years. I remember being in the kitchen, laying down at the table, just so upset that this house wouldn't sell. I didn't want to make any money. I just wanted to break even. Couldn't break even. God, listen, that guy is not as good a person as me. That house is not as good a house as mine. How come you sold his? You could have sold mine. What's wrong? Why aren't you being fair? Why are you trying to destroy me financially? I did it. I remember it. Glory remembers me doing it. I was very unhappy. I was Habakkuk. You are Habakkuk. I place sin in God with that kind of nonsense. And it's quite common. We all do it. And we all make ourselves look foolish. And there we are, being completely idiotic. With these ridiculous prayers that put sin in God. And that raises the obvious question, because Habakkuk does that to himself. What's the obvious question? Who wrote Habakkuk? Habakkuk wrote Habakkuk. It's one thing to stand up here and tell 35 people that I'm an idiot and maybe another couple hundred on the Internet. Who knows? But Habakkuk wrote a prophecy for all of Israel to read at the time, and now it's in Scripture and been read by billions of people. How does Habakkuk come out in the story of the book of Habakkuk? Habakkuk is the star of the story. Writes, so how's he come out? Not so good. He's whiny. He's complaining. He's doctrinally unsound. He's foolish. He's accusing God. He's questioning God's character and judgment. He questions God's intelligence. Essentially, Habakkuk writes a book about Habakkuk being an idiot. And I—that's the key question: Who does that? Who writes a book like that? Most of us, if we're going to write a book about ourselves, the book of Steve, we're going to be the hero. We're going to talk about ourselves as the hero or the heroine, the one who saves the day, says the clever, witty, or insightful thing. The one who scores, hits the 450-foot walk-off home run, bottom of the ninth. Everybody cheers. That's in the book of Steve. But not Habakkuk. He didn't do that. Not Jonah, by the way, not John, Apostle John, not Abraham, not Moses, not David. What's David right? I'm a murdering adulterer. Not Solomon. Not Peter. Who puts himself in a book and is the fool, the loser, the coward, the quitter, the adulterous murderer, the hater, the one that accuses God of being Unaware, unwise, evil. Who does stuff like that? Very humble, very wise men of God did that. And that's Habakkuk. Last week I had a discussion with Travis. It fits here. It's Numbers 20. Because Moses fits here very well. Moses comes up at the end of this. God quotes Moses essentially in Habakkuk when he answers one of Habakkuk's questions. So we'll have to get to that in a second. But Numbers 20 is where Moses comes. You know, Exodus 17, right? Where Moses strikes the rock and out of... Actually, he doesn't strike the rock. That's a bad translation. King James has it right. What does Moses do to the rock? See, they're all dying and they don't have any water. And what are they saying to God, all of Israel? Two and a half million of them. What are you doing? You brought us out here into the middle of the wilderness, the desert. We were doing great in Egypt. They were just slaughtering us by the hundreds of thousands every couple of weeks. But we liked it there. That's how foolish they were. You brought us out here. We have no water. We have no food. We're going to die in the desert. We'd rather go back into slavery in Egypt and die there. And God said, what? Moses, go over there and kill a rock. King James says, smoke. But kill a rock. Capital R. Kill the rock and out of the killed rock or out of the dead rock will come living water and all will drink. This is one of the great typological symbols in all of the Old Testament, right? So Moses knew that rock was a symbol for Christ's death. How do I know that? Because Moses had face-to-face meetings to God. Well, now it comes up again in Numbers 20. People are complaining. They have surrounded Moses and God tells him, go speak to the rock this time. Don't hit it with a, don't kill the rock with the rod. Speak to the rock. And Moses did not speak to the rock. And as I said, he knew that rock was a symbol for Christ's death. That's Deuteronomy 32. It's all over there. And Moses didn't speak to the rock. Moses went out and smote the rock twice. He killed the rock again. Not just once, but twice. Now he understood the symbology or the typology of that very well. Why would Moses do this? Why would Moses write about him doing this? What's he thinking? The whole story doesn't make sense, and and Travis asked me about it last week. He said, that story has never made sense, so I said, well, it just happens to come up in Habakkuk, so I'll explain it to you. And I did, back there in the back, just in case you think Travis and I are talking about fishing. We're not. Well, we are a little. Moses lifted his hand and did this. Here's Moses. doesn't go over and hit the rock or speak to the rock like he's told. He goes, first he lifts his hand. First he yells out, ah, "Here now, you rebels. Then he said, then he lifts his hand up like he's going to do something powerful. And then he hits the rock twice. He kills it twice again. None of that makes sense. Because Moses is the most humble of all men. Numbers twelve 3. Don't include Christ in that because Christ, of course is God himself in the flesh. Moses most humble numbers 12:3 lifting his hands up yelling out here now you rebels striking the rock or killing the rock again makes no sense in, in, uh, in the context of Numbers 12.3. He also had spent time with God and saw him face to face. No one but Moses had seen God face to face. Exodus 33.11, Deuteronomy 34.10. Moses has private meetings with God. He knows what that rock is. He knows the purpose of the rock. He knows the purpose of the typology. He writes it down. And then the second time he's there, he does the exact opposite. And the question is, why? And by the way, what, when he was doing it, he is surrounded by Israel because they're all gathered around him. They're, they're, not, they're, they're starving again. They're out of water. They're surrounding Moses again, and they're threatening to kill him. And they hate him, and they're rejecting him as leader. And if he doesn't produce water, the people of Israel will rush forward and kill him. And what's he do? Does he do what God says? If he does what God said, what's going to come out of the rock? Water. He doesn't do it. Why not? He clearly knows that God. there's no way that he can strike that rock twice, that symbol of Christ, and have water come out of it again. There's no way. It's not going to happen. He does the exact opposite of what he ought to do in order to get water out. Is he trying to destroy Israel? Does he want God to kill everybody in Israel? Moses is the one that said, look, blot me out, kill me, save Israel. The last thing he would do was want Israel killed. Who does he want killed? If he doesn't produce water, the people will rush forward. They've surrounded him. They hate him. They reject him. And they're th- dying of thirst. If he doesn't produce water, the people of Israel will attempt to take him out. And that's obvious. What's not obvious is what God did. See, Nadab and Abihu, first day on the job, right? They're the sons of Aaron. First day on the job. What's the job? Put the, put the correct incense on the altar, right? First day. I like to think of them as showing up in their McDonald's uniforms, or their little hats. And that's their first day on the job. They're supposed to just put the correct fire on there, right? That's all they got to do. What do they do instead? First day. A couple of dumb kids. What do they do? They say, hey, let's add some Egyptian Uh, Symbolicry here. Let's put some Egyptian incense on here as well. They put strange fire on that. The sons of Aaron. I like to think of them as, I don't know how old they were, but I like to think of them as very dumb kids. And what does God do to Nadab and Abihu in their uniforms first day on the job with the strange fire on the altar? What's he do? Kills them both. Dead. Instantly Dead. For bringing strange fire to the altar. What is strange fire? What does it represent? It represents a different incense or a different aroma. God will only accept one aroma. What aroma is that? That is the death of Christ. It represents the death of Christ. They said, essentially, by what they did, that God would accept a other type of salvation that is not Christ in front of the nation of Israel, first day on their job. So it's a different salvation, a different Christ, the wrong covering. It's a bloodless, no blood, wrong garment. It's unacceptable to God. And the consequence was instantaneous death. They're in the priesthood. Moses is going to do essentially the same thing. And he knows this. He was there. He watched it happen. He's going to do the same thing. What's he expect God will do to him? He's going to say the... The sacrifice of Christ is, is got to be repeated. He's got to die again. Every time you need water, what's water represent? Holy Spirit and salvation. You can get thirsty. You need new water. You've got to have more water. got to kill Christ again. That's what he's doing. What will God do? He had to think that. And by the way, Aaron was really shook up. About the death of his sons. First day on the job in the new uniforms. Really shook up. And God calmed him. And I've always thought. Comforted him. I've often wondered how he did it. I mean, I, could you imagine yourself in that situation? Your two sons are dead. They're idiots. God didn't give them a break. He just blew them away. Bang. How are you going to comfort Aaron. You're going to explain it to him who's going to be there with him. Moses. You're going to explain it to them. And then you're going to show what? You're going to show the two sons that makes the obvious thing to me that they're dead physically but they're alive eternally. And what did what happened to them? They were killed by who? God. Frankly, I think that's a pretty good deal. I have a feeling that he's really good at separating the spirit from the body. That's another sermon. Anyway, point is, is that Moses knew this. And he knew death was the consequence of a different Christ, a different salvation, a no-blood, wrong-covering, false sacrifice. He knew death is the consequence in front of the nation of Israel. And Moses is doing the same thing, and he's doing it intentionally. And so why? Why did Moses do this? What did he think God would do? What is Moses trying to accomplish? What is it that Moses doesn't believe? And that's why we have to read this. And by the way, who wrote this about Moses? Moses did. Moses did. How's Moses look in the story? Not good. Who writes a story about themselves where they're the idiot? Men of the Bible do. Over and over and over and over again. My favorite is Nebuchadnezzar. The Babylonian king that comes is used by God to take out Israel. He writes scripture in the book of Daniel. Makes himself look really, really foolish. The whole book about Nebuchadnezzar is he's an idiot. Daniel writes it. Nebuchadnezzar's right there. Nebuchadnezzar ends up eating bugs in the woods for a while. What kind of man writes that about themselves? What kind of man testifies about his own failure? Okay, here we go. We'll read a little bit of it. Numbers 20. We'll start at verse 10. And Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly before the rock. And he said to them, hear now, you rebels, must we bring water to you out of this rock? Does that sound like Moses, the most humble man? That sounds like a guy is trying to convince him that he's got the ability to bring that water out, which he knows he doesn't have. What would he always have said? He would have always said, hey, people of Israel. God's going to bring water out of the rock, just like he did last time. But this time it's different. And many commentators look at this and say that Moses is sinning and he's rotten here. No, he's not. Moses has a plan. Then Moses lifted his hand and struck the rock twice with his rod. He's going out of his way to do the exact opposite of everything he knows to do. And water came out abundantly. That was the part he didn't expect. He didn't think water would come out abundantly. How could it come out abundantly? But it did. And water came out abundantly in the congregation and their animals drank. Then the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, because you did not believe me. And that's the key question. That's the key question. What is it that Moses didn't believe? Did he believe the water would come out of the rock? Oh, I don't think he did, but he knew God could do it. What is it that he didn't believe? Very important. And the point of it all is is that Moses writes about Moses, same as Habakkuk, same as Jonah, same as David. Moses knows. Moses knows what he's doing. Moses knows that this is blasphemy. Moses knows that God will not let it stand. Christ does not die twice. That's denying that Jesus Christ is God in the flesh. Moses knows this, but Moses has a plan. And there's something he doesn't believe God on. And what is that that he doesn't believe? Both Aaron doesn't believe it either. What is it that they don't believe? Do you know? What's that? Well, no. Let's go back and look where they first bring it up. At least Moses. 3.10 of Exodus. Moses wrote this too, by the way. Here's God saying to Moses, I'll start at nine. Now, therefore, behold, the cry of the children of Israel has come to me. That's God saying this. And I have also seen the oppression with, with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come now, therefore, I will send you. To Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. And what does Moses say to him? But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh, that I should bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? So God said, I will certainly be with you. And this shall be a sign to you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Then Moses said to God, Indeed, when I come to the children of Israel, say to them, The God of your fathers sent me to you. What?" And he goes on to ask him what his name would be. But Moses doesn't want the job. He said, Who am I? Don't send me. Send anybody but me. I can't talk. I can't do it. Over here in 4.14, let's keep going. Let's go to 4.10. Then Moses said to the Lord, My Lord, I am not eloquent, neither before nor since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow with speech, slow a tongue. So the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Who has made the mute, the deaf, the seen, or the blind? Have I not the Lord? Now therefore go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what to say. But he said, O oh my Lord, please send by the hand of whomever else you may send. Moses doesn't want to go. He doesn't believe that God knows what he's doing. Doesn't believe that God has made a good decision. Doesn't believe that God knows everything. Hey, God, I don't talk so good. Do you know? Yeah, I know. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not able to do this. I can't do it. You've made a mistake. Moses doesn't believe. He doesn't want the job. Send somebody else. I don't believe that I am the, to lead these people. I think you're wrong. You don't know what you're doing, God. You made a mistake. That's the same as Habakkuk. Long story short, on Moses, he's quitting. So's Aaron. They're quitting. They're putting in a two weeks notice. God would either take them both, just like Nadab and Abihu, or Israel would kill them. That's the deal. They got it. They got both doors covered, right? And what did God do? Sent the water. Why didn't Israel complain about the doctrinal mess that made? They didn't know it was a doctrinal mess. Moses knew. Aaron knew. Israel didn't know. What's that say about Israel? Look at the typology. Israel surrounds and hates and rejects and seeks to kill Moses. And I want you to note that typological connection. The typology always leads to the correct understanding. Would Israel get to kill Moses? Would God have let Israel kill Moses? Moses is one thing if he's not anything. He's what? 330 times he is a direct what? Type of Jesus Christ. He is surrounded by his brethren, the nation of Israel, who are rejecting him as leader and wanting to kill him. Do they get to kill him? No. Why not? He's a type of who? Christ. Who kills Christ? Only God can kill God, right? Yes, go. The red heifer, what he's bringing up, does anybody know when I say ashes of the red heifer, Does everyone go to sleep? Okay. Ashes of the red heifer is another, it's in in Genesis 15 primarily, but it's also another typological symbol of Christ. You must have, you must, the priest had to cleanse himself with the ashes of the red heifer in order to touch a dead body. That's what that is. That is uh, a picture of Christ uh, cleansing us from death. Um, and, um, and, and I have to say, I'll have to think about what Mike's saying to me, because I know it's more complicated than I'm thinking that it is until I but, um, before it knocks me completely off, let me go back and say, the point of this is that you don't kill God. How does God die? He has to kill himself, right? He has to give up his own life. There is no way that somebody who represents as a symbol, as a type of Christ, is going to be killed by the nation of Israel because that would absolutely destroy the deity of Christ. And God would not let that happen. So both of those things. Moses had put God in a box. How smart is Moses? He had thought it through really, really well. He's attacking the deity of Christ by smoting the rock twice he's attacking the deity of Christ if he is killed by the by the Jews which one would god choose very complicated story do not think that moses is an idiot there in the sense of you and me he's an idiot in other senses like you and me but not because he didn't think that through he did he and he and, and aaron were done with this they th- thought they were a bad choice they were ready for somebody else to take over Miriam was dead. Nadab and Abihu were dead. They had put up with this for 40 years. They were quitting. They wanted out. And God mercifully takes both of them, doesn't he? There is no better way to die than, to God, for, than God to come and get you. Anyway, back to Habakkuk. You've got to hurry. Now, where we left off. Because Habakkuk, he does the same kind of thing. He asks Two questions. God answered the first one clear as a bell, and no one misunderstands that. At least on the surface, everyone gets it. There's no discussion in the sense there's no debate on that first question. Everybody figured out what God said as best they could. And as I said, there isn't any disagreement among scholars. The second question, however, has been much more difficult for Bible scholars. They don't understand it. They haven't figured it out. It's very rare that I find somebody that figures it out. Uh, It just seems to, to cause all kinds of problems. Because the second answer that God gives to the second question doesn't even seem to fit the question. Abba Cook asks a very complicated question, and God gives him this answer: that "Josh shall live by faith." The answer doesn't seem to fit the question. That's what I ask you to do: is go home and think about how that is the absolute perfect answer to that question. Because you know it is. How do you know that it is? Because God gave it, made it the answer, and He's who. Omniscient God, there's no possibility that there's a better answer to that question than that one. It's fascinating to me to watch all kinds of scholars say, well, God should have answered it this way. Oh, what's the matter with you? Well, God could have said that there, and that would have been a much better answer. That's that's a stupid alarm going off, and you're not hearing it. Okay. My goal for you at the close of last Sunday's lecture was to figure this out. Figure out the answer, how the answer is the answer. Figure out how the just shall live by faith is exactly the perfect answer to Habakkuk's second question. And by the way, Habakkuk got it. Habakkuk immediately, Habakkuk immediately understood, oh my, that's the answer. Why didn't I see that? And Habakkuk is transformed by it, by the way. And when you've done that, you will understand why that, why Habakkuk 2.4 is the great thesis of the book of Romans, why Paul took, takes it out of Habakkuk and puts it into Romans. When you get why it's the perfect answer to the second question, you'll understand why it fits in Romans. Now you've got a chance of understanding Romans, and that's our plan, right? So... It's also in Galatians. It's also in Hebrews. That's, by the way, how will help you in both places there. It's also in Acts. Paul quotes it in Acts. Paul loves Habakkuk 2.4. It's everywhere. That's how you know he wrote Hebrews, by the way. That's just another reason, you know. Now, there's no time to reread Habakkuk. So just a quick recap. Is all I can do. I got to fly now. And hopefully you were here and you remember the key elements of both complaints. If you don't, just take the time to read Habakkuk and you'll be on the bus with the rest of us in just a few minutes. And you can read it during the sermon. It's it's perfectly acceptable. It's uh, it's my job to give you as much rest as possible. Complaint number one from Habakkuk to God. How long will you oh God? Now, this is the Chronister paraphrase here. It's not literal. How long? This is his first question. He's upset at God. He's challenging him. God is not doing what he wants. And so here comes this blasphemous, disrespectful, insulting attack on the character and the omniscience of God. How long will you, O oh God, allow this unjust, violent, evil, plundering sin continue in Israel? What's he done? Now, again, it's phrase. God, you're screwing up. How long are you going to keep screwing up? That's his complaint. How thin a ice is he on? Really thin. But God tolerates us when we do this. Tolerates you and me. Why do you, O God, not hear me when I cry out? Brain damage. God hear him? Oh yeah, God's omniscient. So what's Habakkuk saying? You're not listening to me. And if you would just listen to me, a lot of things would get solved around here because I got this figured out and you obviously are not doing your job. What are we paying you for, God? It's kind of what he's doing, right? He goes on. There is no justice. The wicked prevail. How many times do you hear the wicked prevail and God does nothing? The implication is, is God is powerless or he doesn't care, right? Can't stop him or doesn't want to stop him. There is no justice. The wicked prevail. The righteous are slaughtered. Oh, that's my favorite. There's no word we got to have now. We've got to have a definition. What's the definition? I have a definition of righteous. Oh, that'll be fun. The righteous are slaughtered. Habakkuk says to God why do you O God not save not stop this wickedness again that's a chronister paraphrase for your benefit but I believe that you'll see that it's mostly reflective of Habakkuk first his first question in Habakkuk 1 1 through4 and God replies to this accusation against his character this implication against his goodness his impl- this attack on his omniscience omniscience and he does that in verses, uh, let me get this exactly right for the people on the Internet. Uh, 5 through 11 of chapter 1. And this is what God says. He will raise up Nebuchadnezzar, essentially. He will send the Babylonians as his instrument of judgment on Israel. Judah is going to be overrun. Jerusalem will be seized. The Jews will be taken into captivity. Okay, Habakkuk, you don't like how things are going? I'm going to raise up the Babylonians. And they're coming. They're to clean you people out. We're going to think the Christ, the first time the temple was ever cleaned, was Christ? No. God cleans the temple a lot. Habakkuk, he said, would be utterly astounded by this, verse 1 through 5, though Moses had foretold it, and absolutely Moses foretold it. The Israelites should have known this would happen because Moses told them it was going to happen. That's all of Deuteronomy twenty eight. That's the curses for disobedience, the reasons for the curses coming to pass, Deuteronomy twenty eight, forty five through fifty. Because you, Israel, did not serve the Lord your God with joy and gladness. What's the obvious question? Why didn't they serve him with joy and gladness? Why didn't they? What does it mean to serve him? What exact service did he want from them? Because they weren't doing what he wanted them to do. What did he want them to do? That's the key to the question. A just shall live by faith. Because they didn't serve him with joy and gladness, he's sending the Babylonians. What did he want them to do? And they wouldn't do it. They hated it. They want nothing to do with it. You did not obey the voice of the Lord, did not keep my commandments and statutes. Therefore, Moses warned them that they would be scattered in, in, into the land of foreigners and they would be yoked up in slaves to other people. And that absolutely is coming true with Habakkuk. Habakkuk said, why, are you going to, why aren't you stopping Israel from being evil? And God said, I'm going to stop them. Here comes the Babylonians. And now Habakkuk says, uh-uh, I don't like that. That's not good. Why would you, this is his second question, why would you, oh God, use such a perverse, evil, wicked, pagan people who worship their power to catch and kill nations, because that's what they did, their power to kill people, they worship that as their God. How? Why would you bring this pagan people who worship this ridiculous power that they think they have, and they're going to come and kill the Jews, why would you use more wicked than us to kill us? The Jews are more righteous than the Babylonians. He says, point blank, Habakkuk does. How would you, why are you going to use this ruthless pagan people, greater evil, to kill the more righteous Jewish people? That's his second question. And then Habakkuk says, You can't answer that question. Ah, you probably can. I'm going to wait. And I'm going to see if I like your answer. I might not like your answer. That's Habakkuk. How does Habakkuk come out in the story? About Habakkuk. And Habakkuk, he does. He waits. He's going to see what God answers. And here's God's answer The just shall live by faith. And Habakkuk is transformed. Now, Habakkuk. See, that's the end of the discussion. So, Habakkuk is transformed by it, and he immediately changes everything. And hopefully you have pondered this over the week, and I hope you have, and at least you've asked the obvious questions, because that's how you solve it. I hope you ask, how does this fit with the Babylonians coming to kill the Jews? He's sending the Babylonians to kill the Jews. Habakkuk says they're not as good as us. How can you send somebody who aren't as good as us, aren't as righteous as us, yeah, we need some help. We need, to be st- we need to stop our sinning. But you're sending the Babylonians. That's a little overkill. And God says, the just shall live by faith. And Habakkuk goes, yeah, end of discussion. Now, hopefully you've pondered that and you asked, like I said, the obvious questions. What's the first question you ask? Where does paganism come from? The ruthless pagans are coming. Why does God send the ruthless pagans? Why doesn't he just go <clears throat> blow them up himself? Why does he want to raise up the Babylonians to come after the Jews, kill most of them, castrate all of them that have any lineage to the king? Daniel, first thing you got to know. First thing happened to Daniel is he's hauled back and he's castrated because he's a prince. And then he's fed a bunch of rotten food that he won't eat, right? Then Daniel does what? Rises up to be who? Daniel. Who's he in authority over? The entire religious order of the Babylonian Empire. What's he do with them? What are they? They're pagans. What's he do with them? Turns them into who? The court of Daniel. What do they do? They become the Magi. What do they do after that? They come and anoint the Christ child. With what? Gold. Because they know he's who? God. Embalming fluid. Why? Because they know he's going to die. Incense. Why? Because they know he's the sweet aroma that's, that, that is God. Right? That God will accept. They know that he is the answer to the Nadab abai who question. How did he learn all of that? Daniel taught. The castrated guy. They wouldn't eat their food. They would not serve him with joy and gladness. He doesn't blow them up. He sends the pagans to get them. The evil, perverse pagans. That's not not right, Habakkuk said. Next obvious question. Why were the Babylonians mass killers of nations that that worshipped their own killing capability? Why did they do that? Hopefully, you have figured out the answer already. Clearly, the nation of Israel was not innocent. Habakkuk immediately changes from argumentative to pleading for mercy for Israel. That's chapter 3 of Habakkuk. As soon as he hears this, he's totally turned and he begins to plead for mercy. He no longer says that there is any kind of way that they should be not found guilty. They should be found guilty and the Babylonians should come. Because of that sentence. Totally now convinced. Israel is guilty. The Babylonians should come. The just shall live by faith. Made that obvious to Habakkuk. So is it obvious to you yet? How many of you I could stop the sermon now we could eat the buffet? Not very many. Maybe one or two. What is the relationship? By the way, last week Mike came up and said, hey, you've got to bring up Assyria. Absolutely right, because I have the repeating of Assyria and Jonah here. Jonah did not want to go to Assyria. Who's Assyria today? It's Kurdistan. Kurdistan is prophesied, you hear me say it all the time, as a defender of Israel at the end of the age. They're going to rise up and fight the Antichrist. That's what they're going to do. The Kurds. That's why we fought the Iraq War. Maybe we knew it, maybe we didn't, but God knew it. And those Kurds are free. And who's arming them right now? The Jews are. And who else? The United States is. There are people in this country and people in Israel that know the Isaiah 19 prophecy with respect to Assyria. Jonah was sent to Assyria, went to Nineveh. You know the story. Didn't want to go, wanted them all to die. God didn't kill any of them. He saved them by doing what? Taking a prophet that hated them and forcing him to go. He swallows him with a fish and vomits him up dead on the beach, right? Makes him do it. Any gladness and any joy in Jonah in doing that? No, he wanted them all to die. Now you figured out the story, haven't you? Because it's the same story, different day. What's the relationship between Israel and Babylon? How is it that Babylon is filled with paganism? It was the responsibility of God's nation of priests, Israel. That's what he called them to be when he brought them out of Egypt. It is their responsibility to do one thing. What's their responsibility to do? They have to do one thing. Serve God with gladness and joy. What is that one thing they're supposed to do? How do they serve God with gladness and joy? How do you serve God with gladness and joy? What's the one thing you can do? I'm going to help you. You have to say something. A lot. What do you have to say a lot? Say it with me. The just shall live by faith. Who have you told that to? I'll translate it for you a little bit. The eternally saved, not temporal, eternal. The eternal living, the ones who have eternal life will get that eternal life by belief and faith. In the name of Jesus Christ, in the blood of Christ. That's all you have to do, is say that, that Josh shall live by faith. Who do you say it to? Everybody. But primarily, who? I'm saying it to you. Am I getting credit for that? Not really. Preaching to the choir, baby. Not helping me much. I'm hoping there's some kind of residual benefit, you know, kind of a pyramid scheme going to go my way. You'll go out and say it to the correct people. I'll get some kind of... Not going to happen, I know. Who are you supposed to say it to? Each other? No. You're supposed to say it to who? To the pagan Babylonians. That's who you're supposed to say it to? What does God want? What does he want to do with the pagan Babylonians? What's he want for them? He wants to save them. He wants them to have eternal life. Teach the world of the truth of the one true God of creation. That's what Israel's supposed to do. And his one true means of salvation. His one true means of salvation is the just shall live by faith. It's a gift. It is salvation by grace. It is not a works-based system. It's a grace-based, blood-based, gift-based system. Belief based. And that's what you got to do. Tell him who he is. And what he wants for his fallen world, and how it is that he wants to reconcile you, and why it has to be this way. Instead, the world, the nations around the nation of Israel, they grow in ignorance. They become more perverted. They become more pagan. They become more ruthless. They're rejoicing and glad in killing other people. Habakkuk 1.15 How could this happen? How could it be that I have the one nation of God, the nation of Israel, the nation of priests? uh, They're right there. They know the truth. They know. The just shall live by faith. They understand the Abrahamic covenant and they're surrounded by pagans. How can that be? Shouldn't be any pagans there. Why? Israel should have ran to them. But Israel didn't. How could this happen? Where is the nation of priests? What are they teaching? They're clearly not teaching this. What are they teaching? How are they representing God? Habakkuk asked, how can you allow this greater evil to kill the more righteous Jews? That's a joke, isn't it? Should have been. God answers, the righteous. The righteous shall live by faith. So what can be concluded? The Jews were not righteous. They were not just. They were not going to live. They had no faith. And how could that be? What did they believe instead? What were they teaching instead? They didn't believe this. They were teaching the opposite of that. And that's what God said to Habakkuk. You are teaching the opposite. That's why the pagans come. And if I can't get you to do it right, I, I can't get you to go to them, what will, I, what will I do instead? I will have them drag you to them. Nebuchadnezzar thought he was getting a bunch of slaves. What did he get instead? Daniel. What did he get out of that? Eternal life. How's how's Nebuchadnezzar thinking this is working out for him right now? Neb's a pretty happy guy. Israel had the opposite of the just shall live by faith. They had total, complete failure, absolute, miserable collapse of truth. Israel was showing the world nothing and hating the Gentiles for their silly pagan beliefs. Look at Abacuc. He just did it. How can you send these, these pagans to kill us? Why are they pagans? Whose job is it to, not, to tell them not to be pagan? Whose job is it to testify to them about the truth of God? Israel had rejected the gospel and had had rejected this grace-based statement and had substituted the most comprehensive works-based system ever constructed by man. And every time God tore it down, they rebuilt it. And you see that explicitly with the Pharisees at the time of Christ. And God hates these lying death systems that the Jews keep building. When they have that, it's all over the Old Testament. They have the real truth. They have the just shall live by faith. They have we are saved. We are given salvation through belief and faith in Jesus Christ, who is God in the flesh. They have that. You have that. That is what ends paganism. And if, Jesus, if Israel doesn't do its job, God does not allow them to, to, to sit there. He's going to make them. He's going to scatter them. And, he, and thou now they're going to teach the Babylonians. They're going to be a wonder and a sign to the Babylonians. Because their God threw them out. God cast them into the world because they refused this. They didn't want it. That is why it is the thesis statement of Romans. It is not by works. It is by grace through faith. To withhold that truth is evil. To oppose that, or to teach the opposite, is vicious. And God will end that. Let's rise and be dismissed. And this is what a professional does when the band is not on stage, when he turns around.